Journalist Jessica Luther grew up as a sports fan. I can't actually remember not being a fan of sports. When she was a kid, Jessica grew up with a single dad. He was in the Air Force. They moved a lot from Nebraska to Washington, D.C. to Florida. But wherever they were, Jessica's dad loved watching football with his little elementary school age daughter. I can remember just the two of us hanging out on the weekends. And there was one TV, of course, back in those days. And we watched football is what I mainly remember, but we probably watched other sports too. And I remember he was very, he still is very big on sportsmanship. And so like when the other team would get hurt, like my dad's very competitive with his teams, but like if someone on the other team got hurt, we had to, you know, respect that. And we wanted them to get better. And it's not worth it if other people get really injured and all those sorts of lessons that he was teaching me. Jessica carried that idea of sportsmanship close to her heart all of her life. But it led her to a place that she never could have predicted when she was a little kid watching TV. Now, as a journalist living in Austin, Texas, she just finished writing a book about college football and sexual assault. It's called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Just a warning about this segment, we're going to talk about sexual assault and how assaults are treated by media and college administrators, but we're not going to talk about any graphic details of specific cases. As a kid, there was no bigger team in Jessica's life than the Florida State University Seminoles. That was her dad's favorite team. He'd gone to Florida State, and it became important to Jessica, too. We have our, our famous, our infamous chants that are racist, <laughs> channeling of whoever made the chants up, their image of what Native Americans sound like. Graduating from high school in 1998, she chose to attend Florida State University, too. It was the only school I applied to when it finally came time. And I was a very good student in high school and had all these dreams of what I was going to do. And I, at some point, decided, like, that was the only school I was going to go to. And I can't Jessica fell in love with Florida State. And football was a big part of that. I mean, I just loved it. I could feel, it felt collegiate to me. Um, It was what I was hoping college would feel like. I loved all the game day stuff. I loved all the sports stuff. I literally went to every single football game. Florida State is in the capital of Florida, Tallahassee. And at times, it can feel like the whole city revolves around football. It's not just a game. It's the center of civic life and culture. The entire town sort of shuts down. You can't get into a restaurant. Uh, You know, people book hotels months in advance, if not a year in advance, in order to be able to go to a game and have a place to stay. Uh, There are just people everywhere. um, And they're all decked out in their gear. Everyone's really excited. There's just like lots of random cheering that happens. It's like a massive party atmosphere and it's fun and you're part of it and you feel uh, this. I mean, I get why people have part of their identity is, is attached to that school and that team and that camaraderie that comes from being a part of that. Um, It's just so exciting to cheer along with other people for the same team when you all care so deeply for what's happening on the field. So when I was there, uh, 
Florida State actually went to the national championship game, and they played against Michael Vick's Virginia Tech Hokies at the New Orleans Sugar Bowl, and I got tickets. And we went to the game, and one of the sort of big, the big storyline of outside of that game was that our um, star player, uh, Peter Warwick, had been arrested for a felony robbery during that semester and had sort of gotten a slap on the wrist in the way that you would expect and was out on the field. And I just remember believing very soundly that like he should be out there. Why wouldn't he be out there? The only thing that matters is if we win this game. And I believed that. A lot of people feel that way, that whatever an athlete does off the field doesn't matter, that winning is the only thing. But after Jessica graduated and became a journalist, something changed. In the summer of 2013, she noticed that two major football teams, the teams from Vanderbilt and the Naval Academy, had gang rape cases going on at the same time. It struck her as very strange and unsettling that not very many people were talking about the cases. I just remember at the time being so so fascinated that sports media didn't care at all. Like they were much more obsessed with whether or not this other quarterback in college, Johnny Manziel, had signed an autograph and got paid for it and therefore broken rules about getting paid as an amateur player. And I just, there was such a cognitive dissonance for me with like, how could they not care that two different major football programs have ongoing gang rape cases? And it's like, it was like crickets. Then in November 2013, the news broke that Florida State University's new star quarterback had been accused of sexual assault. His name is Jameis Winston. It turned out that a female Florida State student had reported the crime more than a year before, in December 2012. It took a year for the case to become public. This was part of a pattern. Florida State's Victim Advocate Office had 113 sexual assault reports in 2014, yet FSU's administration reported only 14 of them to the federal government. The student in Winston's case filed a lawsuit that states that Florida State University, quote, in concert with the Tallahassee police, took steps to ensure that Winston's alleged rape of the plaintiff would not be investigated either by the university or law enforcement, end quote. The university settled the case for $950,000. Winston, meanwhile, was never prosecuted for any crime. He was a first-round draft pick for the NFL and is currently making $6.3 million a year as a quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The student who brought up the assault charges, she wound up transferring. Jessica Luther says that when she first heard the news about this case, she was sad. There's no other word for it. Just sad. It's so it's almost hard to explain like the sadness of, you know, you have this joy in your life and just suddenly being like, oh, man, this is not what I thought it was. Um, I mean, I remember Winston was young. He was a redshirt freshman and he had just come out of nowhere. We had been as a team really flailing for a long while And all these pieces came together. We finally had a very good offensive line, which had been lacking for a long time. And then they put a quarterback behind it. And he was so good. And it was so exciting. And by the time November rolled around, I mean, there was 
room, you know, whispers that he was going to win the Heisman Trophy, which is the top award in college football. Hearing uh, about the rape allegations against Winston entirely changed how Jessica saw him and the team. But I can remember being very sad about it. I didn't, I just didn't want it to be my team. And it's, it's weird to talk about it now because I have definitely had a huge evolution <laughs> in my own thinking around this issue since then. But I recognize the fans who get really angry about reporters writing about this and that feeling of why are you focusing on my school and everybody's terrible and not just us and all these sort of feelings you have. Um, because, I mean, for me, I, I instantly recognized that I was going to have to somehow reconcile this for myself, that this wasn't okay. And then the more I learned about the case, the less okay <laughs> I became about all of it. Um, it's a really messy, terrible case of people just sort of looking the other way and not trying very hard to figure out what actually had happened. I did jump in pretty quickly. I was upset about the coverage. I was upset about how much of it was about him and where there was very little even sort of a mention of a woman involved. Um, and that's part of how I started writing on it was I wanted to correct that narrative as much as I could and say that that's not okay. That's not how we should cover this. Can you spell out like Lay out concretely what was wrong with some of the reporting initially on this that, that made you upset. You said it was so focused on him and and didn't talk about the woman involved at all. Just concretely explain, like, what did you see that you were like, mm, that's not the way we should be talking about rape allegations? Yeah, I think this will be probably familiar to mo anyone who has watched sports media cover any of these kind of cases. What ends up happening and and it's not a surprise. So the way sports works is that we as journalists are trained to write about the athletes and the stories around teams. And and when suddenly this kind of out, you know, this off field issue happens and there's a possible victim involved, sports media doesn't really know what to do with that. Like they're so trained to write about things from the perspective of athletes that they continue to do it. So you get this sort of like, what is the impact on Jameis Winston? Will he still be good at football? And that was like too much for me. This idea of what impact would this have on his ability to play football when they, you know, there were pieces that would barely even mention outside of saying someone had reported or accused him. And so what happened was in November, it comes out there was very good investigative journalism that happened at the Tampa Bay Times and uh, Matt Baker at the Tampa Bay Times. And he got some sort of tip. He figured out that this assault was on, the investigation to the assault was ongoing since December, 2012. When he puts in the request to Tallahassee Police Department in November, 2013, it sort of breaks open. I think TMZ might've beaten him by like an hour or something. And so we come to find out that the police had never forwarded the file to the state's attorney's office. So the state's attorney immediately takes over and then they do their own investigation almost a year later. And right before the Heisman, uh, the state's attorney came out, did a weird press conference where he announced that Jameis Winston would not be charged um, a lot because it's hard to collect evidence for something like this 11 months later. Uh, and this guy Greg Doyle for CBS Sports at the time, he doesn't write for them anymore. He wrote this piece that's very typical. I mean, I'm saying his name, but like, this is just a very typical sort of response. Um, and he's like, okay, time to move on. Everything's done here. Legal thing is over. Nothing to, nothing to see. And I can remember at the time being mad about that. 
like, well, there's still a woman, right? Like, is, is she done? <laughs> like, is it like she moved on? Have we all just moved on? I, I do not like how sports media is ready to just move back to the field. Like, it's all done now. And it, it is, it's not done. There are still bigger questions that need to be asked. And we need to remember that these kind of cases don't just end. Sports media talks a lot more about plays and the game than real-life crime and behavior of athletes, especially when that behavior gets into actions that are not cool and scandalous and cool headline fodder, but are really depressing and dark and scary. So something will happen on field, right? Like there'll be some kind of bad foul and everyone will argue about whether or not that person should be punished extra because they did this horrible foul. And there'll be like these giant conversations about it. And then another player on the team will do this horrible thing off field, like no one wants to talk about it. And I always think that's so interesting because of course it's easier for all of us to have a discussion about this foul and the punishment for it because it doesn't really mean anything outside of the field. Like we don't have to have big philosophical discussions about our relationship to that foul and that punishment or something like that. Whereas when something happens like sexual assault or domestic violence or even, you know, talking about players with mental health issues or any kind of big thing that sort of radiates out into life, you know, it really pulls you away from the sport itself and it makes you really look at things that are important and big and difficult to have conversations about. And I think a lot of people, I do this, I turn to sport because it's simple. There are rules, people follow them. They don't follow them, then something happens. It, you know, and that those things start to fall apart for you when you have to interrogate these off-field issues that intersect with other things in your life. I mean, I really do get why people don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore a lot of the time, but um, I also can't forget about it. And I, now that I've done this for so long, you know, for me, I think about all these women who've contacted me about, you know, things that have happened to them. And those are the kind of things I can't put aside when I'm watching sport anymore. I just can't not think about it anymore. Um, You know, it's kind of, Ignorance is bliss, right? Um, and I can't go back from what I know. So, so you have lots of women contact you and say, hey, this has happened to me or this has happened at my school? Yeah. Anytime I publish a big story, and especially if I end up on national television, like uh, outside the lines on ESPN, um, there's always a response where people contact me. And it's not necessarily people who want me to report on them. They just want to tell me because they think I get it um, and I will be a safe ear for them. And that's so rare. Yeah, I think so. I think people see me and they think, well, if I tell her, she'll believe me and she'll get what I'm talking about. It's not just sports media that wants to move on. It's university administrators, too. I'm hoping you can talk about what role does money play in this? How much of this has to do with football teams, especially being money makers for big colleges? I think it's huge. I mean, it's often true at big schools with big football teams that the head coach of the football team makes more money than anybody else on campus. Um, And so therefore they end up being 
the de facto most powerful person on campus. Uh, the, the football team brings in a bunch of money uh, often. It's often the sort of financial machine of the athletic department, if not, you know, a big chunk of the university. It makes boosters happy, um, you know, alumni who want to give money. And so, yeah, and these players are not paid, right? So this is this is a big thing for me in the in the book as I return to this, I you know, this sort of, these guys aren't getting paid for any of this. So you get things like when they're recruiting them, they can't pay them. They're not, you know, negotiating salaries or something like that. Uh, instead, what you often see is they try to build bigger facilities, better facilities. And then for me, the sort of the dark side of this is they often use women as recruitment, right? They're like these women almost stand in as cash. Um, we can't offer you money, but we have really pretty girls here who will do very nice things for you if you come. This is the implicit promise of these recruitment programs, which I see that as a spectrum. The other end is, you know, sexual assault. This idea that these women just exist um, for these guys' pleasure is part of recruitment. Schools often throw big parties full of attractive female students when they're recruiting male athletes. These students are called hostesses. Since there are strict rules about coaches not spending more than a few minutes with a potential student when they come to tour campus, athletic departments support groups of female students who give tours, answer questions, and are supposed to keep the recruits entertained. There have been a lot of cases where women volunteering as hostesses have come forward about being sexually assaulted. There's so much money that is being thrown around. And so, yeah, if they get hurt or if they get in trouble, uh, there are things in place to get them better and back on the field as soon as possible because they are the ones making the money. Like Jameis Winston at Florida State, not being the idea that he might not have been able to play because he got in trouble. I mean, that we're talking about like a team that was on its way to, and it did win the national championship behind the sky and the kind of like money that that brings in, you get like more people apply to schools when teams win national championships, boosters donate money. Uh, it's this whole thing. And, and then it, it, it itself creates this whole, like when Jameis Winston wins the national championship at Florida state, a big time recruit will come play for them so that they can recreate the cycle. So they've invested a bunch of money in these guys. They need them to stay clean. They need them to stay on the field. And it's just a really bad system that is driven by gigantic, uh, gigantic funds. A big problem with the system is that the schools are at odds with themselves. The school has a strong financial disincentive to investigate rape allegations if they might wind up keeping a player off the field. But schools are not just supposed to be concerned about making money. They're supposed to protect all of their students, not just the ones who are football stars. When schools overlook sexual assault, it's students who have already faced violence who pay the price. <laughs> 